Welcome to the M&A Source Podcast, a podcast brought to you by M&A Source, a nonprofit professional organization that provides training and education for small to mid-sized business mergers and acquisitions intermediaries. In each episode of the podcast, we will interview leaders in the M&A world to discuss education opportunities provided by M&A Source, trends in M&A markets, and useful insights provided by the experts that use them. Thank you for joining us. Hello, and welcome to this edition of the M&A Source podcast, sponsored by M&A Source, the source of opportunity and professional growth for mergers and acquisitions intermediaries and strategic professionals in the lower middle market. I am your host, Lamar Stanley, the head of business development and originations with GenCap America, a lower middle market private equity firm based here in Nashville. And joining me today is Bob Wigbright. Bob is a partner with GF Data and has held a variety of senior level positions in operating, sales, and marketing in the printing and advertising industries. And in addition to being a friend of M&A Source, who regularly interacts with a lot of our membership, he's also a frequent featured speaker on the state of the middle market at several industry events, conferences, webinars, and now podcasts like this one. So with that, welcome, Bob. Thank you, Lamar. Glad to be able to share what bit we know about this current situation. <laughs> yeah. Well, I should also add, welcome to the podcast. And this is a special podcast because this is our inaugural episode in the midst of a pandemic. So I really appreciate you uh, coming on and being willing to pontificate about kind of what's happening and where we think we're headed. But before we do that, tell us a little bit about your history in the business and maybe a little bit about GF Data. Sure. So let me just talk about GF Data and my history will come to surface. So we started GF Data in 2006. Both my partners, uh, Andy Greenberg and Graham Frazier, are investment bankers. Andy is on the sell side. He runs a group called Greenberg Variations Capital. And Graham Frazier, probably a lot of the members know, he's out there quite a bit. Graham has a buy side group, Private Capital Research, that gets deal flow for about a dozen private equity groups, family offices throughout the country, and then co-invests with them. Him and his partner, Joe Mars, are fairly well known. And Graham and Andy both speak throughout the country also. We started GF Data in 2006 with a challenge or the reason that in the lower middle market, and we term that as businesses valued between 10 million and 250 million, most of those transactions are private seller to private buyer, and almost every transaction has a confidentiality clause. What we did is we made a, we created, we developed a secure utility that allows private equity groups like yours and others in the middle market to give us information, valuation, leverage, deal terms, and other details. At the same time, maintain all that anonymity that everybody wants when they do a deal. And now we have over 200 private equity groups that contribute information to us and a litany of investment bankers, valuation firms, law firms, corporate development groups, and others that are involved as advisors in the lower middle market. That's interesting. I I didn't know the history, actually, before you just told us. But what was the genesis? Who was asking for the product in 2006? or, Or how was the idea hatched? Well, you know, Andy was at that point a managing partner with a group outside of Philadelphia, Fairmount Partners. Uh, Graham has his buy side shop, so they knew each other quite well. And it was a constant challenge when you're seeing some of the public deal data back then, mostly cap IQ. But, you know, 
now you've got CapIQ, PitchBook, Prequin, Bloomsburg, Vaxet, and you know all very good resources. But when it gets down to the deal size that most of us are working in, 10, 40, 80 million dollar deals, they're not able to cover that because those deals that in this space rarely have a public attribute. It's mostly Andy's brainchild, but Graham certainly shepherded along. And fortunately, for people to trust both the quality of the data, the quality of the security and anonymity, that's where it came into play to have great relationships in the business. And that's how we evolved. Well, I have not talked to you in probably a month and a lot has changed <laughs> since, oh since you and I last saw each other. But uh, in light of that, can you tell me a little bit about what you guys are up to right now? And is it looking any different than what you're typically doing? <laughs> it's uh, quite different, as you can imagine. I was in Milwaukee hosting a Thought Leader Roundtable program on March 7th. And I remember in Milwaukee at that point, there was very little concern. I wouldn't say little concern, but it wasn't like the East Coast. And people were still shaking hands. A week later, we closed our borders to Europe. And now, a month after that, we've all been in some type of quarantine. Unfortunately, you're not seeing the, the others aren't seeing the picture of my wonderful lake house I've been able to escape to. It's but, a beautiful uh, picture, by the way. Thanks. But the reality, as we all know, is a few things that are happening in the market. There is the unknown. And I'd recommend to anybody that's tuning in to take a moment to go to our website, gfdata.com, and you'll see an article titled, and it's in quote marks, Nobody Knows Anything which my partner, Andy Greenberg, authored, that really kind of restates very clearly what is going on in the middle market with a reference from a uh, William Goldman, the uh, movie producer, movie writer, from his book, basically said, you can create, you have all these great people involved in a movie, but until it's out there in the public, you just don't know if it's going to be a hit or if it's going to be a failure. And so it's we kind of feel the same way, or we definitely feel the same way with the current status based on COVID-19. You know, we've been asked by many of our subscribers, because our data goes back to 2003, and to look at that 2006 to 10 period, which I'll be sharing some numbers with you shortly. What do we take from that? And is this a replication? And it's a biological crisis. And a financial crisis. In 2006, as we'll talk about, it was a financial crisis. So we're not doctors, and even the doctors that are epidemiologists, they are not sure what direction things are going to take, how long it's going to be till we get to any semblance of normal if we do ever again. You know, that's some of the things we're faced with from the deal community. It's interesting. You know, we have a lot of valuation groups and they are continuously doing valuations and they, some senses, need us more than ever because they've already, in many cases, like the ESOP groups, they've done valuations through December 31st, 2019, using our data for market comps and such. They know that they have to go back at some point later this year and reassess the valuation based on a lot of other factors. So, that's where they're going to see actually more work in this whole process. But the investment bankers that are guiding their lower middle market business clients towards a exit or a refinance or whatever it may be, they're in a few different stages. The deals that were almost done, some of them are getting through. A lot of them got quickly put on pause. There are deals that were you were just talking about and trying to organize the seller, getting their books in order. Those are staying in that place, giving them good guidance and help, but not getting near to the market. There were deals that were 
out in the market waiting on LOIs, and those are pretty much frozen. But there are some industries that we'll talk about that are still going through. And the biggest point in this all is where are the lenders? Because without the debt support, you're not going to be able to see any type of risk. But how do you measure risk? And I guess I'm going to throw that back on you real briefly, Lamar. When you're looking at at risk that you just don't know what it is, how are you folks in your business uh, and your firm handling that? Well, we we have not yet had to. So I'll say that everything has been hypothetical discussion to this point, but we have talked a lot about the COVID ad back. And frankly, we do not yet have a great formula for figuring that out. I think that's obviously going to have to vary widely between industries and between companies on exactly how you ascertain what the true value of the company is once we pass through this storm, hopefully sooner than later. The other part is we think that we, as a private equity firm, are going to have to think a little bit more deeply about the structure of our deals. Frankly, a lot of our deals have been structured the same way historically. You know, I, I suspect that the market's going to see a lot more earnouts going forward. They're just going to have to find new ways to bridge the gap between what a seller thinks the business is worth and what a buyer like us is willing to pay for it in light of the fact that cash flows are going to be somewhat volatile for a couple quarters, that's going to be the trick. And so that was a long way of saying, I don't know. We're still working on coming to those valuation discussions. You know, let's talk a little bit about the lenders because that's, you know, the, the one thing we know about lenders is not one of them wants to make a decision that could be a career ending loan. So, they're backed up. They've been backed up the last few weeks with the PPP and the EIDL issues and just trying to help the clients that have businesses or they have loans with that need help, either deferments or whatever it may be. So they don't have that. Even though almost every lender we talk to, we have a lot of them that subscribe, say they're open for business. The reality is when you talk to the others on the investment bank side, their lenders are really not going to look at anything that is not that's new. The one area that we are here, people hearing people are that should be going through even over the next few months are, are deals that you know, have low risk in the sense they may be family offices that are using very, very low debt, if any. Those can still happen. Strategic deals where a much larger public company is is willing to buy a private company and they're you know they're not worried about the debt. They're of course there. Their valuation may change, but they're willing to move forward. And of course, uh, specific industries, you know, veterinary practices. We were talking to one lawyer, the deal lawyer, and uh, she's really pointed out, you know, cosmetology practices, you're going to skip Botox right now. But if your dog gets sick, you're going to the vet and you're going to pay what it takes to keep your dog healthy. So those type of practices, telemedicine, of course, that's booming, security services. So, you know, certain areas are going to continue to go through, but not as much as you know the optimists are saying. I don't want to go into what the CNN Fox mindset, but that's right. that's the unknown that we're all dealing with. Well, before we dive into the to the bad news stories, are there any other industries that are continuing to press on? Deals getting done um, that you're hearing about? No, early on, I heard of a comedian store chain that was that somebody was selling that that went through because you know comedian stores are, are doing well. You. Certain food groups, obviously, unless they have challenges with the logistics aspect of their business, you know, it's always surprising healthcare you'd think would be thriving, but it really 
you know, this is blocking up the healthcare and you don't know what the reimbursements are going to be at this point. So there's not a lot of happy stories that are very, that are broad spread beyond very specific at this point. The nice thing is our Q1 data, we send our reports out quarterly. We're seeing a reasonable deal count for Q1 because, of course, we had a very hot start to the year with January and February. Almost every private equity group like yours, when we talked to them, said this is as busy as we've seen in the first quarter. So everybody's got a little bit in that towards their annual numbers, but we know what will happen in Q2 and Q3. I think everybody's bracing themselves. Our investment bankers that subscribe to GF Data, it's very interesting how some say we you know, we need the data more than ever, and some say we need to pause until we get better clarity on, on deal flow. I know anecdotally you said you're hearing different things from the lenders and then from the investment banks that are engaging with them on certain things, but do you have any data around lending thus far? We don't. Our data is, is going to be six weeks old when we publish it. The sad part is that we, you know, deal volume is not going to give us that much data. What we hear as we talk to the lenders is the spreads that they anticipate going up, but by how much? That's the good news. We have a, you know, there's always a LIBOR floor now. So at least the debt will be, even though there's a higher spread, will still be relatively cheap if it's shared. <laughs> right. But they, that's the question and challenge. In light of that, then let's talk about further in the past. Um, and I know that a lot of people don't want to talk about this. And this doesn't really equate just because 08, 07, 08, 09, and 10 were just a different animal altogether in terms of what caused the crisis and the, and hopefully the rebound looks a little different. What did the market look like before the last downturn? And then are you seeing any similarities from the early data in terms of what this current downturn is looking like? Sure, I'm going to throw a bunch of numbers at you, and I'll try to be as Great, concise please. as possible. So, you know, again, our data is goes back to 2003. So I, I'm looking at our 2010 numbers. We break everything out by deal size, 10 million to 25 million, 25 to 50. These are all based on adjusted EBITDA at day of close, and it's all private equity completed deals or sponsors deals. So they're top quartile businesses. In 2000. Six through nine, you know, is still very different than 2016 through 19. You know, 2006 and seven, we saw average valuation multiples across the full spectrum at six turns. In 2006, 2007, that was high back then. Now, obviously, the averages are close to seven, two, seven, three going into this. What was probably the bigger concern it was not the valuation multiple because in 2009, the average dropped to 5.7, which isn't dramatically less, but the deal volume went from 2007, 178 deals, same cohort of private equity groups in 2009, 65 deals, almost a third of the deal count. And what we were seeing underneath the numbers, though, is the deals in 2009, had it not been, you know, the businesses that deals got completed on were just better businesses. So if the average was six, those deals probably would have gone for seven times in 2007. Instead, they went for six. The deals that were okay, that would have probably gone for five while the average was six, just did not get completed. There wasn't enough risk-averse issues. You know, They didn't have the growth. They didn't have the margins that could support the heavy debt loads. The next thing we look at is, is the debt multiples. Before we get to the debt multiples, just a quick question. So it sounds like the average multiple 
was staying the same because probably the the bad deals just weren't getting done in the aftermath of 0708 or 08, That's absolutely correct. Interesting. Then we go to the debt multiples. 2006, 2007, average debt, 37, 36, 2009, 2.4. 1.7 times senior, 0.7 times turn of sub-debt. So if you were getting your, not only were you getting a, buying a good deal, but you were, you know, having to put a lot more equity out. Um, and we go to the equity structure, 2007, the average equity was 42% of the deal with 45, 12, 13 sub debt and 44% senior debt. 2009, 59% equity and 29% senior debt. So a big, Switch and so the private equity groups, you know, then that were able to put out that type of equity and hopefully ride out and refinance later, those were the ones that were getting deals done. The one slide I wish you could see is the debt to LIBOR spread. And very much it's interesting because when we look at the debt to LIBOR spread on the 2019 report we published in February, what we saw was going back five years, four years, we saw spreads fairly large. As we've gone in the last three years where we're seeing average multiples pretty high, the debt spreads are quite compressed. I'm looking at my 2010 report, and it's the opposite. In 2006 and seven, very compressed spreads, LIBOR to actual cost. And then as we slide in through 2008 and through 2009, the spreads open up quite a bit. What we're going into this market at, and this is you know really important because... The numbers that people are going to be getting offered are probably going to be much lower if they do get offered for their deals. We're seeing the average multiple right now, right now, February, we'll say through February, through December 31st, averaging instead of six turns back in 2007, we're seeing 7.3, 7.2, 7.2 the last three years. And again, remember our data includes all deals 10 to 250 in enterprise value but the bulk of the data is in the 10 to 50 million deal space. So even now, the last three years, the 10 to $25 million deal space, 635961 as average multiples going into what we're seeing. How much of a haircut businesses are going to have to take, it's hard to tell. Hopefully, people can sit it out as much as they can. The leverage going into all this we average four turns of leverage, you know, three, three senior, 0.7 sub debt this past in 2019. And then when we go to the 10 to $25 million deals, it drops quite a bit. It was basically around a little over two nine. It was, let's say, three turns overall debt on the 10 to $25 million deals with two turns of that or 1.9 actually being senior debt. So, that, again, will be a challenge going into this. One thing that is interesting going into this is the equity loads were much higher overall across all the deal sizes on the platform deals that we're seeing because of the valuation multiples. But we saw, you know, we've been seeing the last three years, 50, 51, 54% equity compared to 35, 36% senior debt on platform deals. So, very important to note that as we uh, look at what's ahead of us. So, you know, it's a different leverage market. 
and I'd be interested to get your take on that with the regulated lenders and the non-bank lenders. I don't know what you've been hearing from your lenders. Are they at all coming at you saying, we're still looking to put money to work? Very similar to what you're hearing. You know, no one wants to hang up the phone on anyone, but we haven't heard from anyone that's necessarily really anxious to get out and start offering out loans um, in this market, at least for a couple of weeks um, until everyone gets a little bit of a feel for where we're headed. And certainly I don't have anything that's not just anecdotal. Your data is, is much better. Going to your data again, though, can you talk to us a little bit about the timeline for recovery last time, you know, 809 in terms of deal volume and that type of thing? I didn't bring those slides up because, you know, it just didn't, it was more the depth that we hit. And so I don't have a, a real clean answer for you. I guess probably the biggest concern will be what's the starting point of the recovery? And we don't know, you know, that those are the biological issues. Will business be running at 60% in August? You know, will it be running at 80% or 20%? There's not really a starting point that we know of. And you get all kinds of conjecture, be it three months or a year and a half. Okay. Were there any indicators other than just the deal volume that indicated that we had turned the corner last time? Any data around, you know, the types of deals getting done or the multiples paid or leverage used? I didn't dig into the 2011 to 14 areas. You know, the good thing is, and I hate to tell you this, Lamar, but you private equity folks are pretty smart. So, you know, cyclical businesses, even when that, (laughs) (laughs) even when the housing business started to take off, and we see these great numbers when we look at the various construction trades in our database that our subscribers get to see. You're seeing 25, 30% margins, you know, 12, 20% growth, and you're still only seeing five turns multiple on businesses that should, you know, you would think off the top of the sheet should be going for seven or eight times. But the reality is everybody knows they're cyclical. Your investment horizon is probably two to five, two to seven years, and that cycle. So I think a lot of the good news for our industry is that a lot of folks were kind of bracing, not for a pandemic by any means, but certainly bracing for what would be some type of down cycle in that time horizon. One of the uh, only subject question we ask our private equity contributors is when you did your deal, did you use near maximum leverage, or did you choose to under leverage? Now, there's a variety of tax reasons why you may under leverage. So that kind of gives it a bit biased. But when we speak around the country, the feedback we were seeing and within the data we were seeing is that private equity groups had chosen to under leverage. Over the past few years, I think it went from 45% that used near maximum leverage, 41%. And then last year, roughly 37%. So wow, interesting. that was, it was a, it's a little bit more buffered of an industry, though we did see quite a bit of deals that just chose to use senior debt and no sub debt, which uh, you know makes it a lot more risky if a deal should go sideways. Okay. Well, I, I always hesitate to ask people about predictions, but I'm, I'm going to do it right now. Feel free to, <laughs> to avoid this one. But do you have any deal flow expectations or do you in light of the conversations and calls that you've had and any predictions for Q2? For Q2, our prediction is pretty straightforward. There's, you know, everything works backwards. It takes, on the best case scenario, three months to get a deal done. People are at a complete pause and we're not the only ones stating it. Private equity folks, they want to be 
in-house to see the management team. They want to be in-house to see the plant. So everything's on pause. So you lose those three months for Q2. The question is, will people be able to bring deals back to market or will they be willing to come to market from as an advisor telling their clients there's still a lot of capital on the sidelines and people have been commenting that that way. But I really don't anticipate the deal flow we're seeing as far as completed deals for you know two or three quarters. That would be a good thing. Yeah, no, I agree. And then you mentioned that, that some of the intermediaries you're talking to have said, we absolutely need GF data during this time. And some have said, you know, we're, we're battening down the hatches. What in peacetime do you feel like is the biggest benefit to those intermediaries of the data? And then during this time, what, what do you think? Does it change in terms of function or, or is it just the same thing and it's just exacerbated during different circumstances? We feel where the, and we don't know anybody else has data on these 10 to 100, 10 to $250 million deals like we do. The number one use from the advisory the advisors is managing seller expectations because most of these middle market business owners, they're happy with their businesses. They're doing well. They're ready to come to market and their only knowledge base is they may see a chart from a, you know, one of the public cap IQs or such in somebody's marketing piece. They might hear numbers kind of offhand at either a country club or at a business meeting. But the reality is their 4 million, 5 million EBITDA company is not going to get the same multiple that a 20, 30 million EBITDA company that's being reported in those public groups. And so to be able to come to them and say, you've got a terrific business, we think you can get you market or above market, but let's be realistic what market is. And it's still it's still going to happen on the other side of the table where people are saying, I don't want to live through this. I don't, you know, I've, we've, <laughs> it's been rough. We had to lay people off. We brought them back, whatever it might be. We've realized how rough and uncertainty is. Let's go to market. What do you think we can get? Well, now you can utilize those numbers and say, this is what market was when everything was hunky-dory. Here's what the other issues are. What those other issues are, not for us to decide, but it does give you a place, a marker of being able to tell these business owners that their baby's not ugly, but this is what market truly is. So understand that. And this is what market was, depending on how things change going forward. I think that is important. I mean, seller expectations, that's that's what gets deals done is everyone being able to meet in the same spot. Well, great. Well, anything else that I've forgotten to ask or missed that uh, you feel like would be interesting for, for listeners to understand? Urge you to check out our website where it's, you know, it's one little thing that's come out. This is in this positive deal activity. We have heard from several groups that have meant to spend time and, and you know, review GF data or other resources they may be looking at. It's nice to be able to say, yes, I have time available. So uh, <laughs> yeah, please get a hold of us. And I think people appreciate the article uh, that Andy penned that's on our website. Thank you so much, Lamar. No, my pleasure. Thank you. And don't let a bad situation go to waste, right? So yeah. <laughs> if you want to learn more about GF data, feel free to reach out to Bob or go to their website, gfdata.com. And if you would like to learn more about M&A Source, please go to M&A Source's website, masource.org, and uh, please feel free to reach out to the, the staff there. I would also, the plug for M&A Source, highly recommend any M&A professional to join M&A Source and also to attend our semi-annual conference events where courses like the ones that you'll be hearing on some of these podcasts will be taught and also potentially people like Bob come and speak and, and enlighten us on what they're seeing out in the market. 
Thank you for supporting the show. And to find more episodes like this one, please visit masource.org. I'm your host, Lamar Stanley, and I look forward to chatting with you again on the next episode of the MA Source Podcast. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for the MA Source Podcast. If you would like to learn more about MA Source or would like to join, please visit MA Source's website www.masource.org, where you can find a wealth of information to include information about MA Source's biannual conferences. Thanks again for joining, and if you enjoyed the show, we hope that you'll go to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Join us next time for another edition of the MA Source Podcast. <laughs>